Quoting G. Campbell Morgan, David Gusick writes, We can't think rightly about much of anything until we settle in our mind that there is an occupied throne in heaven, and the God of the Bible rules from the throne. While there may be many differing interpretations, the fundamental truths are self-evident. At the center of everything, there is an occupied throne. At the center of every kingdom, there is a throne. And from that throne, the kingdom is ruled. It is the seat of power from which government is established, judgment is executed, and the rule of law is exercised. Likewise, at the center of every human heart, there's a throne. And from that throne, our lives are ruled. And so whoever or whatever occupies that throne is ultimately what rules our lives. And whatever rules our lives, of course, is what we spend our lifetime serving. Yet if you read the Bible from one end to the other, you will find that what has occupied the throne of the majority of people's lives throughout biblical history is exactly what occupies the throne of the majority of people's lives today. It's themselves. Most people place themselves on the throne at the center of their own lives. It's actually our human nature to do so, which is why most people work and plan and live out their lives in ways that are primarily self-serving. which you would think would result in a lot of really happy, satisfied, fulfilled people, and yet what we find is often just the opposite. Some of the most affluent and affluential people in the world are deeply unhappy, dissatisfied, and unfulfilled. On the contrary, one of the happiest, most satisfying, and fulfilling moments a human being can ever experience, I think, is when you finally come to the realization that this life is not all about you. That this, this life, the reason you exist, the purpose you were created to live for is ultimately not about you. It's about Jesus Christ. And so how is it we've come so far from the actual teachings of Jesus Christ and the rest of the Bible which are focused on him? Well, it's simple. By focusing more on ourselves than we do on him. Right? When, when you are at the center of your own universe... Right? When, when you occupy Jesus' rightful place on the throne of your own heart, it stands to reason that nothing is more important than what you think or what you feel or what you believe, regardless of what the Word of God may say to the contrary. And so look, if Jesus is not on the throne in your own heart and mind, then what he says will always come second to what you feel. Which I'm telling you is a recipe for misery. Just look at the mess that mankind has made of this world. Why is there so much human suffering and sorrow and dissatisfaction? Well, it's not because God has done a poor job of ruling. No, it's because we've done a poor job of obeying his rule. Right? God is holy, righteous, perfect, just, faithful, and true. And because of that, there must be justice for our injustice. Otherwise, God cannot claim to be just or faithful or perfect or holy or righteous or true. And yet, because most people spend their lives focusing on themselves more than anything else, they ask questions like, how can there be a God when bad things happen to innocent people? I get asked that question all the time. Well, look, God created us with the ability to make choices. Most important among them being the choice to accept or reject his rule in our lives. And so from the beginning, men and women have chosen to reject his rule, his will, for their lives at every turn. I mean, we thumb our noses at God and then we blame him when things don't go the way we think they should. We 
murder millions of innocent unborn children just in our country alone. Nearly a million or more every year. Not God, us. We sell people into the sex trade. Not God, us. We sell drugs and sex and abandoned truth and righteousness every single day. Not God, us. We reject the rule of God. We reject his will in our lives day after day after day. And then we get angry, indignant at God when the world doesn't function like we think it should. You understand, none of this is God's fault. It's our fault because sin is a choice. God doesn't make anyone sin. And yet when there are consequences for the sins of men and women, we get mad at God for allowing bad things to happen to us. This is the misery we invite into our lives when we reject the reign of Christ in our lives. We demand justice while refusing to live justly. Mankind has wrecked this world and the people in it, even though God has promised us over and over again that if we live according to his will, his rule, we will be blessed immeasurably, that there will be order, unity, and a common purpose for humanity in service and worship of our king to glorify Jesus. That's why Jesus taught his disciples to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Matthew 6, 9, and 10, because as Richard Strauss says, the throne of God is and always has been the center of the universe, the focal point of all dominion and rule. You see, God's will is being done in heaven. You can be sure of that, where he sits on a heavenly throne ruling over all of creation. The problem is we reject his rule in our own hearts, in our own lives. And of course, the day's coming when we will no longer have a choice to accept or reject his rule in our lives because on that day, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2, 10 and 11. There's a day coming when all people will acknowledge the sovereign reign of Christ over all of creation in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. The problem for many on that day is the fact that it will be too late too late for them to enjoy the rule of his kingdom because they rejected his rule in their own lives here on earth in their own hearts. And so Jesus teaches us to pray, to petition the Father to accomplish his will on earth, which is to say through us, right? His people, he always accomplishes his will through his people. So we're to pray that his kingdom would come and his will, his rule would be accomplished in our hearts here on earth now just as it is already in his heavenly kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth, just as it is in heaven. Okay, well, how is it in heaven? Well, that's exactly what we get a glimpse of today in Jesus' revelation to John, as we'll see, as we continue to study our way through the book of Revelation, where the earthly veil that shrouds us from heaven is peeled back, and John gets to gaze upon the throne of heaven, the very picture of what should be reflected in our own hearts and lives today. So let's pick the story up right where we left off last time at Revelation chapter 4. We'll begin with verse number 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So in Revelation 1.19, if you'll hear, you'll remember we discovered what is 
essentially an outline of this entire book where Jesus says, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. The things that you have seen being, of course, John's vision of the glorified Christ in chapter one. The things that are uh, being a reference to the condition of the churches, including the church today, which we covered in chapters two and three. And also this chapter today as we get to see what is constantly happening in heaven around the throne of God. And then the things that are to take place after this, referring to future events uh, that will be seen, uh, we'll start to look at the beginning of chapter five next week uh, or the week after, and then we'll continue from there. And as Jesus says to John here in verse one, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. Right after what I'm showing you right now, which is worthy, by the way, of note, because there are a lot of people who have interpreted what John saw up through Revelation 19 as already being fulfilled in events that took place before John's day, notably in the Roman invasion and destruction of Jerusalem. But listen, Jesus clearly tells John here that, that he would show him things which must take place after this, after John's time. One other important note for us to keep in mind as we work through this book of Revelation, this is really important. These visions we're gonna read through are full of obvious symbolism. And I'm bringing that up because it's, it's important for us to understand the nature of symbolism because what happens is people often get caught up in the symbols of Revelation more than they do the message of Revelation. And so just, just keep in mind as we go, listen, the reality of heaven is always greater than the description we have of it. You hear me? The reality of heaven is always greater than any description we have of it. There's no symbol or description or depiction of heaven that will ever compare to the reality of heaven itself. And so just keep that in mind because here's the point. If we're not careful, we can make more of these symbols than we do of the message. And so this is just a sobering reminder that in Revelation 22, 18 and 19, he says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. This is exactly why we need to be very careful about buying into the endless theories that people teach today about what day or what month or what year Jesus is coming back or what the mark of the beast is or isn't or who the Antichrist is or isn't and on and on and on and on it goes. Listen, it's good for us to talk about and pray about all of those things, but be careful not to allow yourself to accept someone else's theories as having the same weight or authority as these scriptures themselves, because I'm telling you to do so is to play with fire, literally. Let's keep reading, verses two and three. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So the veil is peeled back, and the open door in verse one uh, signifies, by the way, what openings in heaven almost always signify in God's word, namely God's revelation, which we find throughout the Old and New Testaments. And so John is given a revelation on earth of what is happening as it is in heaven. 
which he does his level best to describe in the only way he knows how, by what he sees firsthand and by what he already knows about God from the word of God. And so John depends heavily on the writings of other men who recorded their visions of God as well, like Moses, uh, Ezekiel chapter one, Isaiah chapter six, Daniel chapter seven, to describe the wonders that he's witnessing. And it's profoundly confirming that John's descriptions here are so similar to those of the other men who wrote about their own encounters with God, some of them as far back as 800 years earlier before John's writing here. Uh, Cody Pinckney said, our purpose on Sunday morning is to join those elders, our representatives, in praising the holy God to cut away the facade of the world around us and to see the true nature of reality, to suspend our belief in the world as we see it and to invite all in attendance to view the true nature of reality. That's just what John is doing here. And the first thing he sees in heaven is a throne. A throne, by the way, is a symbol. It occurs more than 40 times in Revelation. In fact, not only does it occur like 14 times in just these 11 verses in chapter 4, but three out of four times that it occurs in the entire New Testament is found here in Revelation because it symbolizes the absolute sovereignty of God. Right, in millenniums before this, David wrote, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all, Psalm 103, 19. So fittingly, as we see the, the consummation of human history begin to unfold before us here, the first thing that comes to our attention is the throne of God, the symbol of his sovereign power and authority from which he rules over all things. But make no mistake, it wasn't an empty throne, for one was seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So John tries, I mean, it's the best he can do to describe the one who sits on the throne, but notice he's not very specific. He doesn't describe a specific form or a distinct figure. Why? Because he can't. He's at a loss for words. There's nothing in John's vocabulary that is adequate to describe what he's seeing. So instead of trying to describe the person he sees on the throne, instead he describes the glory emanating from the one who is on the throne. And just as this vision captivated John, it has captivated untold numbers since. In fact, uh, for you music lovers, this scene of heaven opened and God upon the throne was the inspiration for Handel's Messiah, one of the greatest musical masterpieces ever written. And for John, in that moment, that glorious, overwhelming moment, all of John's faculties, his attention, his adoration and imagination were fixated on the one who sits on the throne, as was everyone else who was there, as we're going to see in a moment which is how it's supposed to be for us today on earth as it is in heaven. Because in heaven, everyone is focused on God. Again, as we'll see in a moment, there is no other. There are no distractions, no enticements, nothing more captivating or commanding of their attention or focus than the one who occupies the throne of heaven. And that's the way it's supposed to be for us today on earth just as it is in heaven. You understand the, the reason you exist, the purpose you were created to live for is ultimately not about you. It's about a king who created and rules the cosmos and everything in it, which is not only the message Jesus taught, but it's the one his own disciples had the hardest time learning. And I, I, they had to learn it before they would be able to live beyond themselves, beyond the, 
the self-absorbed, self-focused, self-serving lives that all human beings naturally gravitate towards. And those early disciples didn't even fully understand that in their own lives until well after Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended to heaven. In other words, they were believers and followers of Jesus Christ long before they allowed him to fully occupy that throne in their own lives. And the truth is, I believe as believers and followers of Jesus Christ today, we often share that same struggle. Right? In fact, I'll just tell you, I believe the modern church has been guilty of promoting a version of Christianity that focuses more on the Christian than it does on the Christ. There are a lot of Christian books being written and sermons being preached and articles being published these days that promote the life of the Christian far more than they do the life of Christ. And in doing so, we're fostering generations of Christians who believe it's okay to make themselves the focus of their faith rather than Jesus himself, that somehow God exists to serve us and our desires rather than the other way around. I mean, just think about John for a minute. He was boiled in oil in Rome. There are other accounts from early church fathers that say he was also made to drink poison. Then he's banished to the island of Patmos where he took up residence in a cave by himself to try and avoid other prisoners who roamed the island often killing each other, right? If if anyone had a good reason to be focused on himself and his predicament, surely it was John. Yet we don't hear anything about any of that. Instead, he's having a worship service by himself in his cave on Sunday, praising Jesus, focused on the one on the throne in heaven, the one he couldn't see until the heavens were open to him and once able to finally gaze upon the Lord, glorified on his throne. John can't put two words together to describe God himself. And so instead, overwhelmed and enraptured in the glory of the moment, he describes the scene itself as best he can, and as we'll see, No one stops what they're doing to look at John, even for a second. No one asks him if he's okay. No one asks him about his feelings. No one checks in on him to make sure he's doing all right, to make sure his wounds are healing, his heart is mending, his spirits are up. No, because no one can take their eyes or minds or hearts away for even one second from the glory of God on the throne, no matter what's happening in anyone else's life. Now look, as followers of Christ, brothers and sisters in the same family, when someone is hurt, wounded, suffering, yes, we'd better make sure that others are okay and mending and healing. We are to lay our lives down for one another. Jesus was clear about that. This is the point, though. Our personal needs should never take our focus off of Christ, even in our deepest pain and struggle. Jesus should always be at the center of our hearts and minds. King on the throne of our lives on earth as it is in heaven. So look, if the, if the focus of your faith, your relationship with Christ, your adherence to the word of God, if the focus of all that ultimately leads back to you, to getting what you want, your needs met, your desires fulfilled more than it drives you to the throne of heaven, to the feet of Jesus, no matter what your needs are, well then it's time, I think, to be honest with yourself about who is actually sitting on the throne at the center of your own life. Author Bob Goff once said, our problem following Jesus is we're trying to be a better version of us rather than a more accurate reflection of him. Let's keep reading verses four through the first half of verse six. 
Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. As John continues to record what he sees, he describes 24 thrones and 24 elders on the thrones. And as with much of Revelation, there is plenty of debate about exactly who these elders are. And so we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But next, John says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. This is symbolic of the awesome power and majesty of God, reminiscent of the great theophany of Sinai when God descended in fire and smoke, heralded by thunder and lightning in Exodus 19.16. And uh, before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. This is the Holy Spirit, referred to in Revelation 1.4 and Isaiah 11.2. And before the throne there was, uh, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now in Genesis 1.7, God divided the waters that were under the firmament, the heavenly expanse from the waters that were above the firmament. And interestingly, in the apocryphal writing, so this is not biblical scripture, but in 2 Enoch 3.3, the prophet sees in the first heaven a very great sea, greater than the earthly sea, where apparently God's throne rested on these waters. And of course, Psalm 104.3 speaks of God laying the beams of his chambers on the waters. And then Ezekiel chapter one, verse 22, he says, over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And then verse 26, and above the expanse over their heads was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. No question about the glory and power and majesty of the throne of heaven that all of these men were seeing and recording. And of course, the one who sits on that throne, where the question comes in then is the identity of the people around the throne. Some say they're symbolic of the 24 uh, courses of Aaronic priests in First Chronicles 24, 5. You can read that on your own, who in heaven render to God that perfect worship of which the priestly worship on earth is but, an, of course, an imperfect copy. Most people, scholars, uh, believe that these elders represent the heads of the 12 Old Testament tribes of Israel and the 12 New Testament apostles, the heads of the churches, of course, representing the churches. And yet there are others who believe these are angels who represent the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles, and again, ultimately the church. So whoever they actually are is actually not the point. Because what is clear and what everyone agrees on is the fact that these 24 elders, whoever they are, represent the entire community of believers from both testaments across all of time. This is the church in its totality, the unity of all believers across all cultures, generations, ethnic backgrounds, and upbringings. God's people as a whole, all of whom together are a kingdom of priests, according to 1 Peter 2 9, Revelation 1 6, and chapter 5, verse 10. And of course, representative of that glorious day where Revelation 7, 9 pictures a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne. This is the body of believers, all believers, united, unified around the throne of heaven, which the church on earth is supposed to be a reflection of as it is in heaven. Okay, as we saw last week, without Christ, 
He says we're all wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, according to Jesus in Revelation 3.17. But with Christ, we become one. One body, one family, one people, one church, which is why people from so many different cultures and backgrounds and ethnicities and worldviews and perspectives are able to worship the same God together despite our differences and affirm one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's what makes the church so strong because it's made up of people from all over the world with all of our differences and unique talents and gifts and strengths coming together to form a united body It's how it's supposed to be here on earth as it is in heaven. In fact, that is how it was meant to be in the church from the beginning, which we know because that's what Jesus did for us, right? Knowing all of our sin and all of our struggles and all of our failures, what did he do? He chose to love us anyway. The only way we can do that for each other is by putting each other before ourselves, and yet that isn't isn't our nature, Again, as human beings, we're, we're born focused on ourselves, right? Every time a baby cries, what's he saying? What's she saying? Hey, you over there, pay attention to me. It's just about me. I want something. We enter this world thinking about what we want more than what others want. And as we grow, we intuitively take care of ourselves first because that's what comes naturally to us. Look, in order for that to change, our nature, what comes naturally to us, has to change as well, which will never happen on its own. And so that's, of course, where Jesus comes in because when you become a follower of Christ, when he does his work of salvation and redemption in your life, you're given a new nature. The old man dies and a new man comes to life. The apostle Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and of course, That doesn't mean we no longer have to choose consciously to put others first every day. It's still a choice we have to continue to make because we haven't been yet perfected, so we still have to deny ourselves daily, as Jesus points out in Luke 9, 23. We have to die to our old nature every day and choose every day to put him and others first in our lives. And when you're in Christ, you have the ability to do that because you're a new creation with a new nature, which allows you, among other things, to love in ways you never could before. But it's still a choice. To love others more than you love yourself, it's still a choice, and the only way you can ever do that is by being fixated on the source of that love, namely the one who sits on the throne of heaven, because when he is the first priority in your life, then putting others before yourself it actually becomes quite natural, right? When you understand that Jesus loved you the most when you were at your worst, it replaces skepticism toward other people with gratitude when we can look past our differences and realize that our needs are the same. And so look, if you're not loving other people more than you love yourself, well, then Jesus is not the first priority in your life. I say it all the time. As people tell me all the time, I love Jesus, preacher. I just don't care for the church. That's not how it works. You cannot have a high view of Christ and a low view of the church. 
Those two things are scripturally incompatible. You cannot have a high view of Christ and a low view of the church. You can declare your allegiance to him, your commitment to him, your faith in him all you want to, but if you're not putting other people in your life before yourself, then he is decidedly not the most important person in your life. He's not the focus of your life. And so I'll just, a firsthand example, when I find myself for instance, not putting someone else first in my own life, the wrong question for me to ask myself is, what is it about that person that's making me not treat them the way I should? Except that's exactly the question I would naturally ask myself. That's typically the way we approach the differences we have with other people, but that is in fact the wrong question to ask. The right question is, why am I not putting Jesus Christ first in my own life right now? Because if I was, then I would actually be preferring that person over myself, no matter how different than me they may be. By the way, as a side note, there's a common misconception in our culture today that you cannot love others if you don't first love yourself. That's actually antithetical to everything that Jesus taught. You don't have to hate yourself. But if loving someone different than you necessitates you denying your own natural feelings about them because of those differences, then that's exactly what you must do because you cannot truly love others if you don't first love Jesus more than anything or anyone else, including and most of all, yourself. You have to dethrone yourself from the center of your own life and make room for Jesus to occupy his rightful place in your life at the center, on the throne, where you worship him unified with other believers doing the same, your brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters in Christ. And I'm telling you, this is the key. This is the linchpin that holds the family of God together. It is our fidelity to and unity in Christ that binds us together. Differences and all. Not just talking about uh, tolerating other Christians who are different than you, by the way. No, we're talking about choosing to worship with and value other people and their differences on earth just as it is in heaven. Johnny Erickson Tata once said, believers are never told to become one. We already are one. We're expected to act like it. Let's finish our story for today, the second half of verse six to the end of the chapter. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So after describing the one who sits on the throne and the people who are around the throne, John goes on to describe what is happening before the throne. He says, there are these four really weird creatures. <laughs> if you read the visions, by the way, of previous prophets, 
There are a lot of similarities between these creatures described by John and the cherubim described by Ezekiel in chapter 1, verse 10, and verse 18 of his book. Also the seraphim described by Isaiah in chapter 6, verses 2 and 3 of his book. Uh, While their song, holy, 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 also echoes the song of the seraphim, again in Isaiah 6, uh, 2 and 3. And interestingly, uh, the number 4 in Scripture most often represents the entire created order as we see in Revelation 7-1 and Jeremiah 49-36. And so it's commonly accepted that whatever these creatures actually are, they represent or symbolic of all animate life throughout creation, all living things with the elders, again, representing God's chosen people, his church. And as the chorus of these four living creatures swells, the worship before the throne is so overwhelming, the 24 elders fall down and cast their crowns before the throne, expressing absolute submission to God's authority, the only appropriate response to the King of kings and Lord of lords who sits on the throne. And so if we're going to worship him here on earth as it is in heaven, then we have to start by examining our own hearts. Because at the center of every human heart, there's a throne. And whoever or whatever occupies that throne is what rules your life. Whatever rules your life is what you spend your lifetime worshiping and serving. Uh, uh, Domitian, it was the, the Roman emperor who ruled at the time John recorded this book, he demanded that his subjects call him, and I'm quoting, our Lord and God. That's how he wanted people to refer to him, our Lord and God. Why? Because what occupied the throne at the center of his life, his heart, was himself. The same thing that occupies the throne in the hearts of most people. And yet, it's the antithesis of what we find in heaven where the representatives, the leaders, these are the greatest followers of God of all time, fall down before him and cast down every crown before him, every achievement, every aspiration, every dream, every accomplishment, every desire and every need, their very lives laid down at the feet of our Lord in submission to him because that is the ultimate act of worship. You understand, everything that's been created is supposed to point us back to God, not distract us from him. Creation is supposed to point us to the creator. And so when our lives point people to something other than God, then it's time to ask the question, what am I actually worshiping here, God? or myself, because your life reflects what you worship, like it or not. Your life reflects what you worship. How you live your life every day reveals what it is you truly worship. So I'm just asking, what occupies the majority of your thoughts? What demands the majority of your attention? What requires the majority of your money? What receives the majority of your affection? What is the focus of the majority of your energy and effort? Because Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. You know, in the ancient Greek, the word all means all. The worship that is taking place before the throne in heaven is all-consuming worship, which means it is all-consumed with Christ. Yet when we live our lives as if our single greatest purpose is to look after ourselves, and boy, don't we do that. I'm guilty. 
guilty as charged when we live our lives as if our single greatest purpose is to look after ourselves well then we're living a counterfeit life outside of God's created order it's the creation revolting against its creator when the focus of our worship is ourselves because we're called to worship here on earth as it is in heaven And that's how you know you're living an authentic life, not a perfect life, but an authentic one when Jesus is the focus of your worship, which again is evident in how you live because how you choose to live your life every single day, that is your worship. Ultimately to something, either to Christ or to yourself or to this world, which also, by the way, has profound implications beyond just your life. Uh, Pastor and author John MacArthur once said, you're the only Bible some unbelievers will ever read. Think about that. For many people, you are the only representation of Christ they will ever know. I mean, let that sink in for a moment. There, There are people in this world whose only knowledge of Jesus Christ is based on what they know about you. If you claim to be a Christian, I mean, That means their entire understanding of who he is and what he is like is entirely based upon who you are and what you are like. Now, with that in mind, what does Jesus look like for them? The man we read about in the Bible? Or does he look more like you? Do you worship God? Or do you worship yourself? Does your daily life point to him? Or are you too preoccupied with his creation to worship the creator? Okay, because at the center of every human heart, there's a throne. It's the seat of power from which decisions are made about how we view God, how we view each other, and what we do with the life we've been given. To live it for ourselves, or to give it all to Jesus Christ in humble submission, true worship. That's the way it is around the throne in heaven. Can you say the same about the throne in your own heart? Let's pray.